prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Colin Hanks from Orange County and Roswell to his new series of Friend of the Family. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. You know, we always love it around here when we have not one but two generations joining the podcast. And yes, Mr. Colin Hanks joins the ranks just, what, three or four weeks ago? We had his father, of course, the great Tom Hanks, on the show. And uh, now Colin joins the fray, and he was a delight. It's in the DNA. These Hanks men, they're good. They're good eggs. Uh, He's a good one, Colin, and I really enjoyed our chat about his new series for Peacock, A Friend of the Family, and a great many other things, including his documentary work and just his entire career. Other things to mention before we get to the main event. Um, as always, check out the show notes for upcoming events here in New York City and also available virtually. Um, those include uh, Sly Stallone, November 11th, uh, Henry Cavill, October 26th, Ralph Macchio, October 25th, and more to come. We always love to see you guys out there in person. If you can't make it in person and you want to be a part of it live virtually, there is that option. Click the links in the show notes, and we hope to see you guys out there. Uh, Hit up Patreon for all your exclusive content, for the discount codes, for the early access, for the exclusive videos. Sam Hewen fans, uh, a bunch of cool stuff awaits you there. Patreon.com slash HappySagConfused. And finally, uh, hit up our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Josh Horowitz. Um, That is our home for all the video whether it goes up there first, sometimes that goes up on Patreon, but it will land, uh, generally speaking, on the YouTube channel. Make sure to hit subscribe, and you'll be able to watch this conversation with Colin and a great many other things. Okay, so some context for the conversation with Colin Hanks. We shot this in a new location for Happy, Sad, Confused. I was so privileged to be invited to the Paley Center for Media's Paley Weekend Festivities a couple weeks back in New York City. Uh, for those that don't, that don't know, Paley Center is this fantastic, long-standing institution that, uh, of course, celebrates um, the long-storied history of television, and they have great facilities there. I've been going there even in its earlier incarnation, the Museum of Television and Radio, since I was a kid, and now to see what they've done with the place. It's all spruced up and gorgeous. They've, uh, I've moderated events there, and they now have opened a podcast studio, which we were the first podcast to tape in. Um, So me and Colin, you'll hear us kind of joke about that. We have inaugurated this new podcast studio at Paley Center. Um, And I just want to thank the Paley folks for inviting us. You'll hear us, you'll hear in the context of this conversation, um, I think Colin didn't really know, I know Colin didn't really know what he was walking into, uh, but uh, he was so game. Uh, It was during kind of like a a fancy schmancy event uh, for Paley members, um, some of which were watching through the glass uh, partition. So it all made for a unique environment, but Colin's a pro, I'm kind of a pro, and we rolled with it, had a great chat, and uh, like I said, just happy to support a great institution like Paley Center. If you're in New York City, make sure to check it out, um, become a member, do the things, you know you know what to do. Okay, um, last plug, I'm just gonna mention, we talk about it at length in this conversation, but is Colin Hanks has a new series. It's on Peacock, it's a, it's a limited series, uh, and it is, it's dark stuff, guys, but it is fascinating. Uh, it is about this Idaho family, the Brobergs, who 
uh, made some really horrible choices way back when in trusting a friend of the family. There's that title. And uh, had some really traumatic consequences for the entire family. Um, you'll get a sense of it. It's it's a, There was a documentary a few years back called Abducted in Plain Sight, which I've also seen, which is w worth checking out. But this one, um, you know, fleshes it out over eight episodes dramatically, uh, has great performances from... Uh, Colin, Jake Lacey, Anna Paquin, the list goes on. Uh, so check that out. It is currently uh, unfurling on Peacock each week with new episodes. And uh, yeah, that's the whole preamble. Enjoy this conversation uh, with the charming, the game, the uh, slightly shocked to be in a podcast studio in the middle of Manhattan, uh, the great Colin Hanks. Enjoy. Well, welcome, happy, sad, confused listeners, viewers. Welcome to folks here at the Paley Center for Media. I'm Josh Horowitz, and this is a this is a very special edition of my little old podcast, Happy, Sad, <laughs> Confused. And I've got the man of the hour in it with me. We're, we're, we're on this ride together, Mr. Colin Hanks. I'm more confused if we're going to go sad, happy, confused. I'm just confused. I thought this was going to be a Zoom. This is not a Zoom. Yeah. This is a, uh, we, we've got an audience. They gave me the five, four, three, two, one, <laughs> like it's television. So look, I, wherever we want to go, j just take me there, Goose. I'm, I'm, I'm following you. Wait, Goose didn't make it. That's a really bad uh, analogy to start with. Well, you know, Can I'm, I be keep, Maverick? I'm keeping you on your hind foot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> to call back something from off air. Yeah. Um, we're going to cover a lot. Um, Colin uh, has a great new limited series uh, premiering on Peacock soon, A Friend of the Family. Uh, some intense stuff, some dark stuff, but we're going to have some laughs too because you've had some amazing different kind of credits in your career. It feels very appropriate we're here at Paley Center uh, because you've you've really made much of your life in, in television. Mm -hmm. um, uh, first of all, I, I want to say uh, it's a historic moment for Happy, Sad, Confused. You joined the annals of the the Ron Howard and Bryce Dallas Howard uh, duo. You uh, joined the Brendan Gleeson, Donald Gleeson. Oh. Uh, yes. We recently had Dad on. Yes. He, he did all right. I give him a solid B. Uh, for a Zoom, it was good. Exactly. I mean, he was wearing, he was wearing clothes. <laughs> I think that's a, that, that, that's a bonus oh, all no, the way around. No, he was naked. He was, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't mention well, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a little known fact that Hanks are all nudists. I heard, yeah. I heard. <laughs> uh, but no, earnestly, it's really good to have have you, man? And as you said, we have this, this this kind of like I feel like we're in the zoo a little bit. We're being watched behind the. It's a fish tank vibe. It's a fish tank vibe. But you've experienced that all your life. I mean, in a semi-serious question here, is that like out of the womb? Since you've been in public settings, have you felt that? Uh, well, not out of the womb. I mean, I, I was old enough to have to explain to people that my dad was on television dressing like a woman for comedy. Right. Uh, that's a Bosom Buddies reference for anyone uh, uh, paying attention outside of our fishbowl or listening back home or watching back home. There's a standing O right behind you. You can't see it. But. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's definitely something I'm familiar with. Right. For sure. Right. Yeah. Is, is there any coping mechanism at this point? It's just what must be so ingrained. With oh, it's all right coping now. mechanisms. I mean, that's that's all it is. Of right. course. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you you find your way to, to navigate it and you, you sort of get through it. So um, I mentioned to you at, right before we got started again to, to keep you on your back foot. Uh, I hit up a mutual friend of ours because I wanted some intel okay. on the mysterious enigma that is Colin Hanks. Uh, just the fact that you consider me a mysterious enigma, I think, is a huge win. <laughs> uh, your co-star in Life in Pieces, Zoe Lister-Jones. You almost did a spit I take. I should have known. <laughs> I should have known. Of course it's 
Zoe Lister-Jones. Um, the delightful Zoe Lister-Jones. The amazing, talented Zoe, Zoe Lister-Jones. You'll be happy to know she said kind things in return. Okay, good. She called you, quote, generally the best human. Oh. Gross. That's, she is an actress. <laughs> For a living. <laughs> she also said you're a great on-set DJ and that you really know how to set the mood ah. on the set. Oh, that's nice. Is that, that fair to say? You take pride in that skill set? Uh, yeah, actually, I do. I find that um, that can actually be a great sort of galvanizing, like, team-building exercise. Um, so, so explain to me how that, this works. You, you literally... Well, it varies on the job. It really sort of varies on the job and whether I feel like I have the ability to be able to force people to listen to music that I want to listen to and have them not be able to say anything, like maybe don't. Um, but on Life in Pieces, uh, you know, the show was sort of a unique show. There was uh, four different uh, short stories per episode. Right. And generally speaking, on Wednesdays, we would have what were, were called family days, which is when every all of the actors were, were working on the same day, uh, pretty much all in the same, same sequence. And so on those days, I just took it upon myself to just play the Beatles. That just, I said, we're a Beatles family. I'm just saying it right now. And because uh, James Brolin uh, really didn't care. Uh, and so I would just sort of play, you know, Beatles music. And it would just it was a, a great sort of background for all of us to just sort of be in a good mood and right. talk and, and sort of get to know each other. And, you know, how was Monday? Pretty good. Worried about Thursday. You know, that, just sort of getting uh, to know each other. And that was the first time that I actually really sort of did it. Um, but it, ironically, and I, I really don't mean this as a segue, but it is absolutely true. I ended up doing a very similar thing on on a friend of the family to help break the mood a little bit because I mean, the show is yeah. so incredibly dark. So um, me and uh, uh, Austin Stoll, who's one of the other actors on the show, we took it upon ourselves to decorate our sort of actors' holding area. Right. And we created what we called the Broberg Bungalow. And it, I want you to imagine the cheapest tiki bar type environment. We had a disco ball, Christmas lights, all sorts of tiki stuff all over, license plates. I said, let's go with a dive bar kind of vibe here. Right. Uh, we're playing Mormons. That only seems right. <laughs> uh, and so we created the uh, the Broberg Bungalow, and, and I came up with a, an 11-hour playlist of nothing but Hawaiian Polynesian music. So kind of an inverse relationship to the material, as much as away from it as you could I mean, go. we would literally go on set, and we'd be doing these incredibly dark scenes, you know, with uh, subject matter that is just really sort of hard to be in. You know, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I really wanted to try and just as soon as we walked off that set, you know, and we're still on the same stage. But I wanted as soon as we walked off that set, I wanted it to have a different vibe and be a, a, a fun place to to work and have everyone be in sort of a goodish mood. You know, right. And so I just started decorating and, and had an 11 hour playlist and, and Bob was your uncle. I would imagine this would work and help all your fellow actors, except if you like eventually work with like Daniel Day-Lewis, who's like in Lincoln vibe. And he's like, no, we didn't have well, that kind you know, of music. I mean, <laughs> if he's if he's on call, if he's on if he's number one on that call sheet, 
I'm letting him call the offense. You got to let him do DJ the. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he can DJ that set list. But you know, I was like, hey, look, I'm number three. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna claim this now. And uh, and it ended up being a really great, uh, just a way for all of us to sort of galvanize yeah. and and get to know each other and just know that it was a safe space. And so we would enjoy that. And then they say, all right, it's time to go to work. And it's like, OK, off we go. And then, you know, we would uh, we would all, you know, do what we were hired to do. So let's talk about what you were hired to do. This is um, it's it's intense subject matter. This is based on true events uh, for those that might be familiar with the documentary. I'm blanking on it right now. It was abducted in plain sight. Thank you. Abducted in plain sight, which is great in its own right. But this obviously. I mean, I guess one of my questions about this is, is, is what you think a narrative form like this can accomplish that a doc can't. But let, let's first set up what this story is. We're, we're in Idaho. It's, in the, it's the 70s. It's a Mormon family. And um, it's a heartbreaking situation. It's an incomprehensible situation is what it is. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, um, what, what are the, the, the general facts that people should know, you think? It's, it's challenging because there are so many facts. But um, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, the, the Broberg family befriended another family that was new to Pocatello, Idaho. And um, it just so happened that the uh, patriarch of the other family, a guy by the name of uh, Robert Birchtold, was a master manipulator, predator, and pedophile. And he kidnapped the Broberg's daughter, Jan, not once but twice, while also manipulating uh, Jan's mother uh, and father uh, and blackmailing them. <laughs> having sexual relationships with both, but but blackmailing both, and it, it's an incredibly complicated web of deceit and deception, and and it's really very very heavy stuff. So if I want, if I had to break it down, I'd say, oh, it's about this family whose daughter was kidnapped twice, and that's not the craziest thing that happened. No, totally. It's one of those those shows or the films this way, too, where it's like there are like seven moments where you're literally like, what the, like, yeah. at the TV. <laughs> like, yeah, how you, can this I, be? And that was, that, that was my, uh, I mean, that was my experience watching the documentary. I, I was not familiar with, with the film. Right. I was not familiar with the Broberg story. Uh, I got offered, you know, the the, the job and they said you know here are the first three scripts and that was sort of my my entrance into the story and then someone had mentioned oh and there's this documentary you know you should check it out to sort of see where the story goes and as I was watching the documentary I mean I pretty much spent a lot of time on my feet just screaming why yeah why yeah. why did you make those decisions why did any of this happen and that ended up being really it, it ended up sort of being the galvanizing one of the the galvanizing forces behind me deciding like I kind of had to be involved right because there is having made documentaries before I, I know the balance between running time and wanting to tell all the facets of a story and it's hard to sacrifice reality for the sake of running time and you know continuity of narrative and things like that but there were so many things that the Broberg family had to endure that the documentary kind of just covered all of those things onto the next, onto the next, and, on the ne yeah. and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and 
lost in the shuffle, I, 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 I felt, uh, was the reasons why these people made the mistakes that they did. Well, I think it also, that time, that luxury of time, lets you sit with this family, sit in it. We have nine hours. The, the documentary had 90 minutes, you know, maybe 100 tops. Yeah. So I, I understand the limit that, you know, that's an, a limitation of a, you know, a narr- you know, a, a documentary film in that way. But it is a step towards this incomprehensible empathy that like that, that may seem incomprehensible rather at the time. But like the more you humanize and feel see all the facets that 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 this patriarch was a not just somebody that was taken in, but but was like a multifaceted, like loving, funny human being. Yeah, uh, you can connect with the, oh, absolutely. the situation. I mean, I you know, when I when I finally got on a, a Zoom and it was a Zoom, we 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 made the appointment to have a Zoom with the and with Eliza, the director they and they didn't the throw you into a fishbowl. Throw me into a fishbowl <laughs> and like have it be part of some festival. Our meeting was an actual Zoom. Unlike some people I know, uh, but wow. when uh, when uh, when I uh, met with uh, with with Nick, uh, you know, our, our showner, I said, like, look, I'm only interested in showing why these parents made these decisions, right? And I'm not trying to sugarcoat. I'm not trying to um, forgive. I just want them to be able to have the. I just want to be able to understand why they made the decisions that they did. Because to their credit, the Brobergs have admitted always that they made every single wrong decision that was possible. But I think what is often overlooked is the reasons why they made those decisions. And those that reason is Robert Birchtold. He was a master manipulator. He was a predator. And he not only groomed young Jan Broberg, but the entire family. And so at every point, they were making the wrong decision, yes, but they felt like that was the only decision that could be be made. And there's a very specific reason for that. You also have family members very much involved in this production, which, I mean, to different degrees in in other productions happens, but the the circumstances of this and how involved it seems Jan was and Mm -hmm. I I take it on set and and available. I did a scene with Jan (laughs) Broberg. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, she she plays a therapist at the end, uh, at the end, you know, the the last episode of the season. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess, I just, is that a helpful resource or is it like, because you have so many different things you can turn to. You have your director on set, you have your scripts, you have the doc and you have the real life participants and that can be almost like too much information at a certain point or no? Well, yeah, I think there's a balance there sometimes. Uh, I mean, it's definitely a fine line. I mean, I, none of us would have gotten involved at all period full stop if she had not been involved. Uh, and that goes for Nick as well. Like he would not have even attempted, you know, writing any of this had Jan not been involved and 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 given blessing and 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 input. Um, and so that in and of itself was was a, a good enough reason to sort of start. But to to Jan Broberg's credit, I got a note from her, a handwritten note. Uh, when I uh, landed in Atlanta saying, I'm here if you need me. You're the only person I want playing my father. Go. Like, don't feel like you have to 
get in contact with me. Don't feel like you have to consult me. Like, I'm very aware that you are playing a a, a character this is who the is best based on yeah, yeah, yeah that that is based on a real person. And that freedom that she afforded us, all of us, um, to which was basically just, hey, I'm here if you need me, and use me as a resource if you want, but don't feel like you have to. And that was such a blessing. So, you know, at that, for those first uh, 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 few weeks before we had started filming where I'm just grasping at any straws to try and find out how I'm going to wrap my head around this, I was texting her and asking her all sorts of questions. I'm just going to ask you every single dumb question there is and just give me as honest an answer as you as you can and just know that there is no wrong answer. Right. <laughs> uh, and if there is no, you know, if you say, I don't know, that's fine too. Uh, and and that was really sort of it. And she had, she had relationships with, with each one of us, you know, and each one was was different. She was incredibly respectful of, of everyone's process, and, and she understands that because acting is, is one of her passions. So she, she sort of understood that, you know, we needed to have an ownership over uh, our, our characters, our story, even though it is literally her story. Right. Well, it's very generous of <laughs> yeah, her. Yeah, incredibly generous. Um, where does this look stand in the pantheon of Colin Hanks' looks over the years? This is Well, not... hopefully nothing like Colin Hanks. That's, <laughs> I mean, to refer to myself in the third person. That's, what, that's what you do. Yeah, you walked in and said Colin Hanks is walking. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, there was so much about this whole thing that just made me very uncomfortable. And and by design, I, I agreed to do it because it made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, look, we're all coming out of two years of a pandemic in which we're all sitting around wanting to be able to live our normal lives and, and go about our daily lives and our jobs and do everything. And, and, and we couldn't do that. And during that pandemic, I just sort of said... I want to try and push myself more right. and do things that make me feel a little uncomfortable. And whatever that is, like if if I'm given the opportunity to do that, I I have to I have to jump at it. And then and then true to form, you know, the sort of worst nightmare is. So we've got this Mormon character who's super sweet. <laughs> And you're the only guy, so please do it. And it's just like, oh, there, nothing about this is really... Like, I didn't really want to do that. I've, I've never yeah. really wanted to try and play the incredibly nice, well-meaning, you know, no matter how dark it is, it's always a bright and shiny day kind of character. But that's who Bob Broberg was. And yet he also was going through arguably the darkest thing that a husband can go through, the darkest thing that a father can go, th can go through. So I just sort of jumped at the opportunity and just said, okay, let's, let's go. Yeah. Like, let's just, the, let's go all out. And the farther and farther I, I, I dug, I just said, you know what, if, you know, how do you feel about shaving your head? Great, let's do it. Like whatever I can do to not look like myself and whatever I can do to just sort of put myself aside at the beginning of each day and just say, I'm literally, you know, my joke is always, you know, well, I wear makeup and I pretend to be other people. Well, let's wear the most makeup possible and let's really pretend to be somebody else. And so that's that's what I did. Okay. 
as long as he can bring the tiki bar, he's down for whatever you got for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I want to get a sense, just go back, since we have the luxury of time. Let's first talk about sort of television in general, because we're, we're, we're contemporaries, and I, I, I assume we have some, some touchstones that are similar. Um, TV you grew up on, TV that you were obsessed with. Like, if I asked you, favorite sitcom, favorite game show, favorite drama, do you have any, oh, any wow. nominations that come up? You know, uh, uh, yeah, sure. None of them great. Well, that's okay. That makes it more interesting. That's fun. I mean, for whatever reason, I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say it because, you, you know, I'll, I'll say it and you'll go, oh, of course. But for whatever reason, I was obsessed with Hollywood Squares when I was younger. Shadow Stevens for the win. Shadow Stevens for the win. That's, that's, <laughs> and Jim J. Bullock for the block. Th- these are the rules. Um, I was big on that. I loved Night Court when I was a kid. I just thought that was just the funniest show. I understood about 25% of the jokes. <laughs> um, but I, They're I, bringing that back. Do you know John Larroquette's I heard. Yes, I heard. Dan Fielding is somehow still alive. <laughs> I know. Uh, His liver is, can't be which well Which is incredible. Point, yeah. Well, w- uh, the irony is, is I remember sitting next to him on a plane when I, when I was younger, j- randomly, and I was so incredibly excited to be sitting next to John Larroquette. This is Dan Fielding. And someone was talking with him, and, he's, and they said, how's that show? And he goes, oh, good. I, uh, although part of me just kind of wishes that Dan Fielding would just get AIDS and die. And I just went, <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, Interesting, interesting tidbit I'm learning about uh, show business here. All right, I'm going to file that away. Uh, but I just, I absolutely loved, I, I just loved that show. That uh, Everybody on that show I thought was great. Um, and, yeah, you know, TV was, um, you know, I was of the era, we, we are of the era, where not only were, you know, was net, network television still incredibly popular, but cable became a thing and so I just watched I mean just a heroic dose of MTV uh, growing up uh, and just uh, inhaled uh, uh, music uh, television like like no tomorrow and that was incredibly influential in my life and yeah I, you know I just kind of watched everything yeah at that, that that age, I remember I the TV was just always on, and it didn't, almost didn't matter what was on as long yeah. as the light was flickering. Yeah, totally, completely. Did you have when you started to get into acting? Um, because your dad was actually the rare exception back in the day. Back in the day, not many actors were able to make the transition from TV to film. Yeah, um, and he obviously did. Yeah. Did you have like an attitude about sort of like or a goal in terms of what kind of actor you wanted to be and what kind of medium? Did you care? Were you agnostic about well, where you were going to do it wasn't necessarily what the medium was. It was more about what the project was. And, you know, when you start out very young, you have very lofty ideals as to what it is that you want to to do. And which is not to say that at any point I looked down at the work that I was doing. I always was very appreciative of the fact that I was a working actor at a very, very young age. And I, it was what I wanted to do. It wasn't something that was forced upon me. It was something that I thoroughly enjoyed, and it was, and I still do to this day. I'm still incredibly fortunate enough to still be allowed to do it um, by the show business gods. Uh, uh, may they shine down upon us all. Um, you repeat that mantra every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> um, but I do remember 
you know, I had been cast on a, you know, I was very lucky in that I sort of came up within this sort of teen movie, teen show like bubble. Yeah. Uh, and I was on uh, a, a network that was called WB. There was a, um, there was a frog involved. Double WB. Look that up. It's very. Very problematic. Um, but uh, I w- remember being on a show, and I w- uh, had been uh, lucky enough to like be cast in movies on hiatus and all that sort of stuff. And I remember being cast in Orange County, and that was happening. That was filming at the same time as uh, the second season of Roswell, right? And there was this whole question of well. Can he do both? No, he's not going to be allowed, and powers it be, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, Jason Kadams, who was the, the the showrunner of Roswell, was very thoughtful, and, and he said, you want to know, this is an amazing opportunity for you, so we're going to write you off of the show so you can go do this movie. And I, rem- I only bring all of this up because I remember that was of the era uh, where once you, quote-unquote, graduated... You never had to go back. And I was told, literally, <laughs> hey, congratulations, you'll never have to do television again. I remember being told those words. Uh, and, um, and <laughs> you know, that changed probably within about five years. Well, and, I mean, the, the, the good side of that, because that sounds like a dark, oh, no, they had to pull me back to the... the this doghouse. No, is oh, it, it not co- at all. But it coincided with this amazing Correct. advent of the best. Correct. I mean, dramatic material. Literally editing. within two years, The Sopranos was on was on TV, and and it changed everything. And so, I was very fortunate to look. I mean, I've been witness uh, to a lot uh, in the last say uh, forty years of. <laughs> Of show business, so I, you know, I, I've I've been witness to to quite a bit, but I've actually been involved uh, in in more than half of that, uh, and I've seen a pivot, and I've seen yeah. a change, and it's continually to change. I mean, you know, <laughs> every few years it seems to be changing. We're doing a podcast here for crying out loud. Right, what right. was a podcast in 1998? So um, I, I've seen everything kind of grow and evolve, and I have found a way to still be invited to the dance. And for me, that dance involved television still. And that was where I was still able to work. And not only was I able to work, but I was able to stretch my wings and do different things and do comedy and do drama and be able to, uh, you know, be able to play in a wider part of this, to be able to play in different areas of the sandbox. Well, it's the kind of way that actors often used to talk to me about theater. It's like they they, couldn't, they, they wouldn't be able to get the leading role in film, but theater... The pay wasn't as as great, but the rewards were fantastic. Correct. Great. Yeah, absolutely. And and with television, it, it you know the amount of time that uh, people take to tell stories and the kind of stories that they uh, they want to tell that was just where a lot of the the you know the opportunity lied. And and it it also seemed to line up more and more with my tastes yeah. and being able to sort of say, okay, well, what do I actually want? to do you know how how do i want to try and and you know evolve and grow you know as my own sort of artist so what what were the first auditions like because you talk about having this passion to go into acting and in some ways it it 
it seems like it's the hardest possible path for most people, mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. you with your last name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can only imagine that that preceded you the first few years. Oh, it still precedes me. Well, I mean, it will, it will precede me uh, it, until my dying day. Well, it's receded a lot. That's the body of work <laughs> you've established. But walking into that audition room, and I can only imagine a number of casting directors thinking, I'm getting a, a version, maybe I'm getting a little bit of the, the Tom Hanks something when he walks in. Did you feel that? I mean, did I feel it? Not necessarily. Um, I was definitely naive. I, I I was sort of coming into it knowing full well that it was definitely what I wanted to do. It was definitely what I was passionate about. I, uh, I There was nothing else. There was no plan B. There, there was no and, other escape plan. And this is invariably what you always hear. Like the advice for actors is like, it better be the only thing you can do. Or Absolutely. Want to do. Like, and are there that. a lot of things that I would have liked to have done? Sure. Would have loved to have been a hockey player. Right. I got <laughs> flat feet and bad knees and I can't ice skate. So that's not going to happen. Um, but for the most part, there, w- there, there was no other plan B. And so I went into it naive in thinking, well, you know, sure, there's the name component and and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, eventually that's not going to be an issue. And that was an incredibly naive sort of way to to look about it, because that was really kind of the only thing for, for a long time. And look, you know, there have been moments where I, I go, am I crazy? Because I keep expecting the outcome to be different and it's not right the definition of insanity the very yeah. definition of insanity <laughs> but um but it all it it actually weirdly all comes down to something that my dad actually uh, did say cuz i get asked this question all the time you know what what uh, advice did he give you and and he he said very very bluntly he said look if you want to do this i believe that you can he said, I believe that you are talented enough that you could have a, a career, not the most amazing career, but you can have you can provide for yourself. And maybe if you're lucky enough, a family. But you have to want it more than anything, because the amount of stuff that you're going to come up against that every actor comes up against, as well as all of the other baggage <laughs> is going to be a lot and it is going to push you and it is going to make you feel less than yourself and it is it is going to be a challenge there are going to be very 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 dark days but if it is what you want to do go for it uh, and that was uh, that was really kind of the thing i always kept going back to you know uh, a little rumor control for you. I looked up um, some of the early roles and there was one uh, i don't know if it was an audition or just something rumored that you were up for just because I'm a geek, I'm fascinated. Oh, I think I know what this is. You're going to know. Go for Star it. Star Wars. Yes, okay. Anakin Skywalker, supposedly you were thought of as a front runner or no. something. There's nothing there. So I did meet with the casting director like every other actor my age at that time. Got it. Everyone <laughs> went and had a general meeting in which you sat in a room and you were videotaped having a conversation talking about everything else under the sun except Star Wars. And, uh, and I saw another actor who, who, uh, who I knew 
uh, was coming in after me, and he's like, oh, hey, and he mentioned it somewhere, and then it became, like, a whole thing. But there was, there, there was, uh, that was it. You it didn't was, get the lightsaber, you I got didn't nothing. get nothing. No, you I just got, got berated got for 20 years from people like me. No, and, I, and like, not even, not even anything for any of the new shows either. What? Yeah, nothing. Are you a big Star Wars guy? Huge Star Wars guy. Huge. They only make like eight shows now a year. You, I, your I, time is coming. I, I mean, I'm just from your lips to the show business God's ears, please. Have you watched Andor yet? Yes. Of pretty course. great. Oh, those first three episodes? Stunning. Oh, can't it Might wait. be my favorite so far of the I, shows. I, I, it's, it's up there, without a doubt. And Rogue One is also, I mean, just a fantastic film as well. So yeah. uh, that, that is the, that, that is like... <laughs> That's so much catnip for me because it's not only the universe and, and, and Star Wars and everything that I love, but it's also the kind of storytelling that I appreciate the most as an adult and as someone who actually consumes what is now called content <laughs> uh, before they were films and movies yeah. and, and TV take, shows. taken the art out of it and just made it into it, like a module. All, it's like just a... all content. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's like that's up the alley com- like completely. What else hasn't come your way genre-wise or whatever? Like what, what do we need to secret into the universe? Are there the kinds of things that feels like, because you've had, a, I mean, as you've said, thanks to television, uh, especially a very varied kind of career, but what, what aren't they thinking you, of you for that you wish that folks would? Um, oh, that, geez, that's a good question. Uh, anything that uh, involves a guy that is not nice. Okay, so you're over the... <laughs> He's a jerk, as we can tell from this podcast. He's a jerk. Well, you know, I, I think more than anything else, it it's, and and this is uh, no one's uh, uh, fault. I think this is just the nature of 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 commerce and storytelling at times. But for me, I, I'm just wanting to play as a, a, a three dimensional character as possible, and a lot of times show business really re- is all about two dimensions. Right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, regardless of what they're trying to sell you at the movie theater uh, with glasses. Um, they really just kind of want something very simple and straightforward and something that you've done previously. And I have been very lucky, and it's it's what you've you've sort of picked up on, is that I have been able to find those nooks and crannies within television in which I've been able to subvert that and do things that feel that way but are actually really something else entirely. And, you know, Dexter was an example of that. Even the uh, Mad Men was an example of that. Fargo is an example of that. I was going to bring up Fargo because you were in the first season of Fargo, which yeah. was such a – a wonderful surprise because I'm sure, like like me and a- anyone else with with some degree of taste in film, you revere the cones. Yeah, and you'd say, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> it's not even that. It's just how. Well, what is that even going to be? Like, Correct. What, yeah. And you must have asked yourself the same question. And mm-hmm. I guess the answer is through the filter of Noah Hawley, um, yeah, a, a genius writer. Um, did it feel like you were doing a riff on the cones? Did you know what he was going for? Did it feel like it, it was going to turn into what it was, or, or give me a sense? Well, I had no idea that it was going to be received the way that it was. I think that that's the important distinction. Um, I, look, I, I had the same reaction that I think everyone else did, which was basically doing your best Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka impression, saying, stop, no, don't, come back. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't try... Didn't they always... They are. They already did a, a Fargo thing, you know. Why, why are you going back to this? Yep. And 
the thing I was told is, read the script. It's really good. And so I read that pilot script, um, and there was so much about it that was incredibly unconventional. I mean, not just Coen Brothers unconventional, but it just was very unique. Yeah. And uh, I read it, and I said, okay, well, I'd love to, you know, at some point, Noah and I were were sort of uh, uh, in, introduced and, and put on the phone together. And, and he said, look... In a normal pilot episode of a television program, you would have your 10 characters that must be introduced within the first 10 pages, and then your story begins, and that's how television works. And he said, I'm not doing that. He said, I've sent you a script in which you are a season regular, and yet you are introduced on page 50. We are going to be doing this very, very differently, but I promise you that when the full season is looked at there will be a very specific point a to point you know b storyline for gus that will be a full experience and just based on that alone i sort of said okay all right well i'll just sort of you know every creative you know endeavor involves some kind of metaphorical jumping off of a cliff right and that was a scenario in which I said, well, I don't know if I understand it. I, I, I don't know if I will understand it, but this guy very clearly knows what he's doing. Right. So I'm just going to jump off the cliff. I mean, I always say, I, I, I don't need, we were talking baseball before we started, I don't need a single or a double. I want people to go for the home run. Take a big swing. In film or TV, in the arts, what, we've, seen, we've seen solid things over yeah. the years. Just go for it. Well, and, but that, what, that what, what I appreciated about that was is he was the one that was doing that. Right. And what, it, what everyone else was required to do was to hit singles. And I really enjoyed that component of it. Right. That idea of we're all signing up to be a part of this thing that on the surface looks like, okay, we're creating a Coen Brothers cinematic universe. Like, what are we, like, yeah. is this fan yeah. fiction? Right. Like, what is it uh, that we're doing? And that, and I understand everybody's cynical point of view when they hear about that. Mine was the same. But as soon as you started reading the scripts and, and talking with Noah, you sort of understood, like, oh, this guy's, this guy's thinking much, much bigger than we all are. So I'm just going to I'm going to show up and do do my work and and hopefully it'll all make sense at the end and and it did. The the other aspect of your career that we haven't touched upon. I'm not talking about the kerchiefs, but that's a whole other aspect. But it, <laughs> but uh, that's another podcast. Uh, but is the directing and the documentaries, yeah. which uh, is fascinating and, and and you're very well accomplished in. I mean, folks should check out um, Eagles of Death Metal, All Things Must Pass about the Tower uh, Records. Tower Records yeah. R.I.P. I grew up with it myself. Of course. Um, Talk to me about your goals, ambitions in that space right now. Is that a parallel path to the acting? Like, what are you trying? What, what do you? How do you view the documentary side of your your life? It's very funny because it's really they sort of started off in two differently, like separate entities of the sandbox. And really, it came about because uh, you know I was wanting to get work as an actor, <laughs> and it wasn't happening. I was living in New York at the time. As, uh, as a matter of fact, we were talking about that earlier, and. Uh, and I just wasn't working as much as I, as I needed. And, you know, all of my friends were writers and they were writing stuff for themselves and, and all of that. And I just said, well, I, I don't have that discipline. But I was very interested in documentary films and I, I love 
stories. And so I looked at it as a, a, a possible creative outlet for when I'm not wearing makeup and pretending to be other people. And that was how the Tower Records documentary started. And once I was sort of... Uh, uh, immersed in that world and getting to know other people within the sort of the doc space and and getting more familiar with 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 docs and how you craft story and narrative and all that sort of stuff it ended up just becoming more and more uh, uh, part of my bandwidth. Uh, and so, you know, I've been very fortunate in that I've started a production company with my good friend, Sean Stewart, and, uh, who's also very, uh, uh, you know, enmeshed in the doc space and he produces a ton of docs and we've been able to create a company in which I'm able to direct docs, produce docs, long form, short form, a little bit of everything. And it's, really kind of been a conduit to hopefully at some point bringing, you know, the Venn diagram together so that there's a little bit of, of both, you know, whatever that may be in some sort of narrative uh, uh, feature, you know, down the road, who knows. But it's a way for me to be able to be creative in storytelling and yet flexing a completely different muscle. And it's been one that's it's been incredibly rewarding and has informed you know, the makeup gig uh, immensely in terms of understanding where I fit in and, and how, how, how can I help? How can I be of service? What can I do to help push our story forward? It's cool to see also like your different passions. Also, again, that Venn diagram coming together, especially in the doc space, because, you know, music is such a big part of your life, I know, and um, sports and, and baseball on yeah. this next one that you've produced, which I'm very excited about. Say, hey, Willie Mays, yeah. which is coming to HBO and HBO Max November 8th. Um, I mean, icon, legend that is Mr. Willie Mays, and I, I take it he, he's participated in this. Yeah, talk. yeah. I mean, he's never allowed a documentary to be made about his life, and we were fortunate enough to uh, get a chance to meet with him and sort of pitch him on the idea, and he was absolutely game for it and and he uh sat down with us uh, nelson george who's uh, uh the director on the project is incredibly talented uh, filmmaker uh really sort of just took the ball and, and ran with it pardon the pun but i love puns and uh yeah i mean just in, incredibly fortunate in that i'm you know able to be a small part in in you know in the wheel of trying to help enlighten uh you know uh, baseball fans, but just people <laughs> in general about not only one of the most uh, uh, amazing uh, athletes of, of a generation, but also an incredible uh, individual and, and human being. So I'm really very fortunate to be able to be a part of that. And I know you've spent much of the last year basically living in the 70s, thanks to a friend of the family and the offer. <laughs> yeah. Um, any gigs in a different decade coming up with the the, the, uh, the makeup go uh, job? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, I just came back from London. I did a, a brief little romantic comedy over there and a nice little palate cleanser, if you will. Uh, which what was the DJ mix nice. on that one? What the, was... There was no DJ oh, mix, okay. unfortunately. I, you would have thought I would have gone, you know, just pure, like, you know. Dark death metal, like, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it could have been uh, Black Sabbath. Right. It could have been uh, maybe something more like a Radiohead or Oasis <laughs> or Blur or any of those things. But that was such a small uh, uh, go-get-it indie that there was no time for uh, uh, trying to come up with a, a playlist for that one. Um, it's been really great to get to know you more today, man. Uh, congratulations. Folks should check out A Friend of the Family. It launches on Peacock October 6th. Uh, it's an impressive piece of work and a story 
that is, yes, seemingly incomprehensible. And yes, you will be talking to your television, perhaps, <laughs> and maybe that's part of the goal. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly a conversation starter, and it's a great piece of work from you, as always. Okay. Um, we have just inaugurated this podcast studio at the Paley Center for Media. We've decided we should we, should, we get to name it now, right? Yeah. Well, what was the name that you came up with? I, the... think, I think it's the Hanksowitz Studio. H- Hanksowitz Studio? Yeah. Live from Hanksowitz Studio. <laughs> I, I think it's great. Let's get... If, I, if we're not back here and there's not like a really fake looking, uh, you know, a fake metal plaque, right. we've done something horrible. I wrong. aspire for more. I want like a, like a centaur kind of beast, like half you, half me, like melded together, like a statuette. Oh, well, you must have that podcast money because I, I can't help. <laughs> I can't make that happen. I can't make that happen. Uh, congratulations, man. Thank you all for watching here at the Paley Center for Media. It's been a real pleasure to be part of the uh, weekend festivities. And uh, thanks, Colin. Thanks, Thank man. you. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) 